0: was RKG-3 grenades. Like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms, fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point, the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, It was truly bullets flying from every angle that that you could see i open the door and look outside and all i see is muzzle flashes
1: there's a guy on top with a 240 and the rounds pass right past his head at that point our instincts kicked in
0: one one pilot on the controls the other pilot was using his m4 to engage single man targets on the ground you're shooting at everything it was a fight welcome to this episode of the spear the podcast about the combat experience brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Timothy Heck, and today our guest is Major Joe Ritter of the United States Air Force. Joe, some of you might remember, has been a guest on here before, and he's going to talk to us again today about a different experience he had while a UAS operator supporting operations in Afghanistan. Joe, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks. Happy to be here.
0: So for those of us that have forgotten because we've slept since your last interview, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a MQ-9 pilot for uh, uh, Air Force. I've got a background in uh, both special operations and uh, what we call conventional attack uh, RPA operations. Uh, Prior to that, I was flying uh, manned ISR, uh, RC-135, so big uh, strategic platform, and then moved into the tactical uh, UAS world. I have experience in Afghanistan, OIR, and then a little bit in AFRICOM and uh, UCOM AORs as well.
0: So uh, a varied experience there. From RC-135s, which have been in the inventory forever, to some of the the cutting-edge UAS technology.
1: Definitely, although it's funny uh, seeing the difference between flying an airplane uh, that dates back to the early 60s versus one that's basically current production. In some ways, the technology in the old jets has been upgraded in ways that it's almost better. I said on the last time I was on, with the MQ-9, just the magic to make the thing work, the fact that you can fly an airplane and employ weapons via satellite from half a world away, a lot of the technical power power goes into making that work. So there's some sacrifices in terms of uh, human-machine interface and kind of creature comforts so in some ways from a pilot perspective it's not a very pilot friendly airplane to fly just because things that would be automated or would be more convenient in an airplane that's had 50 years of development just isn't there because at the end of the day we've still only got you know 20 years of development in kind of the large-scale rpa systems that we fly
0: so from what you're saying flying a uas is is way cooler in video games than it is in real life
1: I wouldn't say that. I would say it's a lot harder than uh, people make it out to be. I mean, because we do – the it's funny you say the video game thing. I think everybody that does what I do has heard like, oh, it's just a video game, that kind of stereotype. And then when you sit down to do it, there's – Just some some of the technical complexities that we haven't quite evolved to, uh, just simply in like the way that uh, the interface is from a pilot perspective, but it's because we put all the money and all the resources into the mission capability and it's an incredibly capable airplane. It just means that sometimes you have to do math and sometimes you have to uh, do something that an autopilot probably could do for you. We just haven't uh, put the developmental resources into making it happen.
0: So you mentioned a lot of your experiences, right? You've flown all over the world in support of a variety of missions. What story are you going to tell us today?
1: So today uh, I'm going to talk about an event uh, that happened uh, back in Afghanistan in the fall of 2018 up in the northeast, uh, Konar province, uh, for folks that are familiar with uh, the Afghan theater. Uh, Very different than last time I was on. I talked about, you know, close air support directly uh, working with uh, ground force. Uh, This was uh, very much... Uh, more of a traditional, or it went out, stepped out the door to be a traditional ISR mission where we had a tasking that we were going to go out. We had a technical collection profile that had been mission planned for about two or three weeks uh, that we were going to go out and fly. And the overall intent was to locate a particular HVI that ran a Taliban network in one of these valley systems up there. And so we there was no ground force. It was all going to be Jock controlled, working uh, specifically through the J2 channels uh, in order to uh, get some uh, technical data to help us locate some, uh, some individuals and develop the battlefield.
0: So the technical profile is you guys flying racetracks in the sky. What is what does that look like for those of us that have lived on
1: the ground? Depends on the sensors uh, that we're trying to use. There's different uh, different things you need to do uh, based on which antennas and which uh, sensors uh, you're trying to make work. Uh, on this day, it was uh, a lot of a lot of just different orbits uh, to get around the terrain. Uh, up there where you've got vertically developed terrain. Uh, you have to shift the airplane a lot. We had specific points uh, that they wanted us to hit and then specific orbits that we needed to fly vicinity uh, vicinity of those points. Who sent you this task? So the tasking uh, comes down uh, through the uh, air tasking cycle uh, just like any other airplane uh, in the Air Force in a combat theater where you get uh, ATO uh, direction, so an air tasking order will tell you where to fly. That's on about a three-day production cycle or a plan, execute, assess uh, three-day cycle. Uh, but beyond that within the uh, ISR allocation uh, process. Uh, the unique thing here is we were flying for the conventional uh, train advise assist command uh, in Afghanistan, which did not get a lot of love from uh, the Air Force RPA community, uh, just because the soft guys were taking most of the MQ-9 sorties at the time, going out to use them for what they did. So in order to get that, mis- uh, that mission, it had, had to go up through the uh, allocation process and the requirements process. So that had been probably the, at the division level, the S2's priority uh, for the entire theater. Uh, so there'd been about a two to three week uh, planning piece uh, where the intel guys uh, from the uh, brigade and up to the division level had decided that, hey, if we get this uh, Reaper and we fly this mission profile, we think we can achieve this ISR effect and you know characterize the battlefield in this way. And that got blessed off uh, up through the command level at the headquarters of Afghanistan, and uh, then for the Air Force uh, to get the request and prioritize of all the requests for air support that, all right, this one makes the cut, so these guys get a Reaper.
0: So the tasking orders come down, right? You guys have been assigned to, to put the bird in the air. Do you have direct liaison with the force in the ground you're supporting?
1: We do. Uh, We're talking uh, primarily over uh, internet uh, Merck chat, so just uh, typing on a computer. We've also got a secure phone line uh, we can use to talk to them. A couple other resources, but primarily uh, 99% of everything I'm going to talk about today is uh, me uh, typing on a keyboard uh, that's uh, mounted there kind of in the side of the ground control station uh, where we're talking back and forth uh, with a guy in a uh, forward location uh, working in the S2 shop.
0: So what happened on this one to make it stand out?
1: So this one, uh, we get up there, uh, we're flying around, uh, and for the aircrew, uh, what we've been tasked to do is, is kind of a boring uh, thing because we've got our points and we're told what to do. It's not particularly creative. It's uh, very much kind of the go drive the bus. Go, uh, go do what you're told and uh, suck up your data, uh, see what you can see, and then an analyst is going to break it out and uh, do some, make, uh, make, turn that raw data into intelligence. So we're up there and the sensor operator and I are just kind of talking and looking around and just doing the best we can to get some situational awareness of what's there. And we find uh, this, uh, in the vicinity or one of our targets is this large valley uh, with a road uh, running uh, parallel to the valley that came to a Y-shaped intersection uh, going over the next ridge line. And right in kind of the the mouth of that Y, we saw a a well-established defensive fighting position, kind of a bunker, uh, three-sided shape. Uh, which we looked at. And just looking at the terrain, you could see that you know from that one DFP, you could control essentially three major lines of communication uh, and you could control a village that was at one end of it because that was the only way in and out of the village uh, at this end of this valley in Konar. So we looked at that and we're like, that's a pretty significant indicator that there's a Taliban presence here and that they've got the ability when they want to just roll out set up in their point of dominance and control kind of a pretty significant chunk of the AO. So we saw that and our immediate thought, you know, we're thinking more tactically like, all right, these points and these orbits, that's cool and all, but like here's our indication that the enemy's here. So if we just develop this, odds are we're going to find them because they took the time to build this bunker out and dig it out and make it, you know, a sustainable fighting position. They're probably going to be back at some point where they're certainly in the area. Uh, so we communicated that and you know, typed away, uh, talked to the support unit and said, hey, we think we should uh, develop this. And they're like, well, that's interesting. But we've got, you know, this collection plan that we spent three weeks developing. Shut up in color. Go fly your points. Uh, so we kept uh, we talked about it internally. Uh, and we were like, uh, I remember saying to him, I was like, dude, I think I think if we just sit on this, we're going to find something. And uh, he agreed with me and we were just kind of talking about it. So what we decided to do was do the best we could to kind of build our own uh, collection plan within our collection plan. We said, all right, well, we've got to hit their points. We've got to do the orbits uh, that we're tasked to do because we're we're not just going to go freelance here. Like we've got to respect the command and control, but we can certainly like in between things, we can revisit this. We can give it a few scans here and there. If we need to uh, do a 180 and kind of reset one of our loops, uh, we can coordinate and do that. So we Go through this process of recognizing rather than just kind of sit back and do what we're told. We're actively scanning what the supported unit wants us to look at. And then we're going back and revisiting this intersection and just giving it, you know, 30 to 60 second revisits, just seeing if we catch any movement uh, and can develop anything. So we did that for about two hours as we're flying along. And after about two hours, we saw this uh, big blue uh, pickup truck come slow rolling right through that intersection with about four guys in the back uh, looking all you know dressed up traditional Afghan wear, kind of slow rolling it through the neighborhood, looked like they were surveying everything there was to see. And we followed that truck uh, for a little bit just because that's interesting. Uh, folks with background in Afghanistan will say normally you see a bunch of dudes in a truck, uh, especially in a Taliban controlled area. That's suspicious, uh, not necessarily an indication that these are bad guys you're looking at, but it's not normal pattern of life because normally they'd be out doing agriculture or doing whatever they do. Uh, Just the large group of adult males, all about the same age, was curious. So we followed them. They kind of drove past the Y intersection uh, down to the tail of the Y and into the village. And they all uh, went internal to this building and just kind of set up there like they were doing, whatever they're doing in this building. Uh, We get to kind of another point of... Uh, concern where as a crew we we're like oh we need to sit on this because these guys you know if we're trying to develop the area and develop the enemy presence good chance these guys are the enemy we're going to develop them just by watching them but at the same time uh the guys on the s2 side you know again had, all they've seen is from their perspective it's kind of arbitrary like yep yeah, you found a found of dfp there's dfp's all over afghanistan you found some guys there's you know taliban all over We're looking to get this technical information that we spent a bunch of resources to try and get. We want you to keep doing uh, what you're doing. So again, we kind of start doing this. I don't want to say it was disingenuous, uh, but start doing this routine where we go hit the points they want us to hit. And then each time we need to change the camera or change the orbit, we'll just uh, go back and revisit uh, the building that we'd seen this pickup truck uh, roll up to. And we did that uh, again, probably another couple hours. I I specifically remember I told the, uh, they call them isr tactical controllers the guys who run isr missions uh, out of the two side and they uh, i told him like hey we're gonna revisit this and see what we can see and i remember he types back and he's like that's fine just need to make sure you guys are staying on your orbit basically uh, so you know he's being probably a little bit frustrated with with us because we keep pushing like hey we need to we need to move to this we need to and I'm telling him what I think we should do. And he's, you know, spent a lot of work uh, getting this mission staffed up uh, through the division level to make it happen. And here's, you know, some random dude uh, sitting in Las Vegas flying a robot, uh, telling him uh, how he should fight his war. Which, from his perspective, I get why he wasn't very happy with it. And it was just a matter of we're looking at it and like everything we see here is telling us we've probably got something significant, and I don't want to just let it go. Uh, so we keep, uh, go back to the points. There's a couple times uh, where, now again, I don't want to say I was disingenuous, but I said, hey, stand by three minutes, I got to adjust the orbit. And really what I was doing was you know, turning around a mountain so we could come back, get a quick quick peek at uh, what we were looking at. As we were doing that, uh, just so happens, pure luck. Uh, we see the uh, front door of this house uh, kind of pop open right at the time when the airplane is uh, kind of parallel to it and I just kept the turn coming around and flew right over the top of it, Uh, gave us a good near vertical look down. And as we looked down, we'd see this line of uh, six guys, I believe, uh, walking out, going back to their vehicle. And I think four or at least four of them have uh, slung weapons and one of them's carrying what looked like a PKM or something big, uh, heavy weapon system. Uh, so we see that and we get that, there's a great snapshot, you know, a mere vertical look, and you can see these guys uh, carrying weapons out of a building entering the vehicle. So immediately, as soon as we see that, you know, it's a dynamic mission change. There's your There's your group of five armed adult males or six armed adult males. There's your correlation, okay, yep. We found the bad guys. It was kind of interesting from the supported unit perspective. Uh, as soon as we saw that, like the whole technical package that we're supposed to go out, that kind of falls by the wayside because they're they're able. They were to their credit, they responded dynamic and like, "Okay, you guys got something here. We need to develop this." So we immediately uh, everything. ISR driven and uh, go out, you know, we're going to go develop the battlefield and then we'll let the analysts uh, turn that into Intel. Uh, that kind of goes by the wayside. and Now we're kind of shifting to a kinetic mindset because uh, we're following this truck as it's driving through these mountains and it's fairly steep valleys. So the MQ-9 has a benefit. We're a pretty slow airplane, so we can station keep a lot better than a jet. Uh, where, you know, if they're trying to orbit around a truck driving on, along a steep hillside, they're going to get masked by the terrain every quarter of the orbit. Uh, for us, we're able to turn tightly enough that we could keep a pretty good look at them, uh, but it's still fairly challenging. So I'm immediately talking to uh, this guy, uh, Dylan, my sensor operator. I'm like, all right, man, if we got to shoot these guys on the road, what are you thinking? What's the best way to do it? It's just because the aspect is going to be different uh, because it's a road cut into a very, pretty steep vertical hillside. And we've got to look at our charts and figure out, hey, where are the turns? Because if we were gonna strike, we obviously didn't wanna get masked during the time of flight. So we're, we're talking about all these things and how we could get after this. Uh, at the same time, uh, I learned after the fact, just debriefing it, uh, the guys in the jock are having the same concern. And essentially they've, uh, they you know, they sat down to do this ISR mission. Uh, they didn't have uh, fires not involved, right? Because they were just going out there to go collect. Um, so they've got to take the information, what we've seen dynamically and build up this, you know, uh, baseball card for a strike. Like, hey, we've got six Taliban with at least one heavy weapon system, multiple smile arms in a vehicle uh, moving this direction. It correlates with known enemy activity and like all the all the surrounding intel that you have to go to brief up a kinetic strike so they're going through that process kind of in the background to us so it's a little bit of a kind of a weird quiet part of the mission because we all know important things are happening but the guys uh forwarding country are busy doing what they're doing Uh, in the gcs we're busy doing what we're doing so we're not really talking to each other we're just kind of following
0: what told you these guys weren't afghan border police or afghan national police or or
1: even nds so that piece uh, we had uh, from the background of the mission, uh, that was uh, the whole reason we were there was because that the particular valley that we were in had been known to have a uh, pretty significant Taliban presence. And this was right around the same time that ISIS was moving into Konar as well. Uh, so we'd had uh, reporting uh, from the uh, Afghan National Army, who the supported unit, was it was TAT, the Train advisor Assist Command. They're embedded, uh, you know, they're advising the ANA, and the ANA is giving them, Every indication that hey, this is this is bad guy country, and uh, it looked like the Taliban were kind of consolidating resources in a place that, where there was no ISIS, and they had plans that they were going to go do offensive operations against uh, the host, uh, the Afghan forces in the region. So we had some background, so we understood that kind of from the blue force tracker perspective uh, that we didn't have to worry about border police. Um, We've done the deconfliction uh, through, especially as we got kind of into thinking that we were going to strike, uh, done the deconfliction with the intel guy to make sure, like, yep, no, it's not NDS or uh, militia. Uh, we knew we were kind of in a red area, so that informed the decision making a lot too. Uh, I don't want to say because, yeah, yeah, you, you obviously can't, you know, go fly around Afghanistan and as soon as you see a bunch of dudes in a truck, just say, yep, that's the enemy. You have to have the back, you have to have the background, and we had the background. And the, the cool thing, you know, I talked about there's you know three weeks of background that went into planning this and developing this area just to justify, hey, we needed to fly this MQ-9 sortie. That background intelligence. Gave us pretty good uh, understanding of what was going on in the area, so we knew who the players were. Uh, from an aircrew perspective, we could walk into it, understanding like, "Hey, we're in, we're on the uh, enemy side of the flot here," uh, just based on the background that we had.
0: And you were talking
1: about a strike, so you were hanging weapons off the pylons. Most air. Uh, every- We almost always will carry the weapons, uh, even if there's no plan to use them, uh, just because you never know what happens. Uh, The airplane stays in the air more than 20 hours. So it's a very, uh, you know, you've got long endurance and it's got the capability to dynamically respond to a lot of things. We'll we'll carry uh, at least the Hellfire missiles. Pretty much every sortie at that time in Afghanistan, every sortie we'd have the Hellfires, and then depending on uh, what was going on, we may or may not have a 500 pound bomb as well. In that in that area, those mountains, uh, the kind of the target study piece of it, uh, we've is huge. So we've got uh, capability to pull up imagery, uh, kind of a shared screen between us where we're looking at, hey, where does this road go? Where do we expect these guys are going? Uh, what's the what's the environment going to look like during the next few miles? Uh, just because there's obviously a time to our engagement sequence, so you always want to think about not where I'm going to be when I start the attack. Where where are we going to be at the terminal phase of the attack? Where's the target going to be? Where's the airplane going to be? Because with the laser-guided weapon, uh, obviously the laser to target line, the direct line of sight is the key to success. And then you obviously want to make sure uh, you're deconflicting with any potential collateral. So making sure there's no buildings, farms, uh, you know, friendly checkpoints, anything like that coming up. So. Having a blue force tracker and having uh, some target study to be able to think, you know, four five, six minutes down the road is important. So we're, we're doing that, uh, talking about the best way uh, to get after this. Uh, again, because it would be kind of a challenging shot on the road. And then as it happened, uh, the truck uh, stops uh, immediately, like right under a tree. Not, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they knew uh that, you know, they were, you know, it's probably, you know, it was Afghanistan in the, this was September. So it was still fairly hot out there. So it might've just been for the shade. Uh, it might have been to try to conceal themselves a little bit, but they stopped right under a, a pretty large tree that was right on a hillside on the side of this road. And then there's a trail going down to one of these multi-terrace uh, houses uh, that you see up there. And we saw uh, one of the guys get out, uh, walk down there and start interacting with somebody. And then kind of climbed back up and these dudes were just kind of hanging out uh, right by the side of their truck uh, under this tree uh, along this, uh, still the same road that led from the original Y intersection. And they'd gone away from the district center, just kind of up into the hinterlands, into a really rural area where this little farm uh, that they stopped at was the only thing around for uh, miles, really. So they picked the one, uh, the one spot uh, where there was kind of a 90-degree bend in the road and some shade that made it fairly challenging for us to see them because uh, there's obviously the shadow as well. And then there's a little bit of a civilian pattern of life, probably 50, 60 meters uh, down the hillside. So we're we're stopped and seeing that, which kind of changes changes everything. So we're like, all right, got to figure out what's going on here. And right about that same time, we get on the, uh, the secure phone uh, with the JTAC, uh, so the fires guy uh, that's sitting uh, at the headquarters that would be the one responsible for working a kinetic strike. And so JTAC calls us up and kind of briefs us up on the situation, uh, which is, hey, we've briefed this up. Uh, Ground Force Commander is looking to execute a kinetic strike. Uh, intent is going to be to kill these uh, armed adult males uh, that we're confirming as Taliban based on your imagery based on supporting intelligence. Uh, We've done deconfliction with friendly forces, uh, made sure there's no Afghan uh, military or militia in the area. And we've got uh, high confidence. Uh, We're looking at enemy. We've still got capture of weapon systems uh, and we're looking to uh, neutralize these guys. So as that's happening, as he's having that conversation, uh, we've got the phone and both of our headsets, so we're both listening to him as right as these guys kind of roll up under this tree, uh, which presents a fairly challenging shot for us because it's the middle of the day, uh, bright sun in Afghanistan. Uh, so uh, our camera is you know, a lot more sophisticated than what you've got on your iPhone, but the same general principle. If you try to take a picture from bright sunlight into shadow, uh, you're not really going to see what's going on. So that's where uh, Dylan, uh, sensor operator in the right seat, he's uh, really making his money, like adjusting the filters and the blends and manipulating the camera so we can kind of see into that shadow because we want to make sure that we still got capture of our group of guys, you know, identify where the weapon systems are, where the personnel are, and make sure that we can see specifically what's going on. Because if we're going to take a shot, it's a precision weapon. We're not just shooting in the general vicinity. You know, we're going to make a specific shot uh, where we're going to put a missile down to try and get the effects that we're looking for. And in this case, we're trying to kill the personnel and disable the weapon systems. Uh, So we're trying to have the most essay of what we can see. So we're having that conversation with the JTAC. And then I'm trying to hold the airplane uh, in such a way that I can see between uh, the side of the hill and where this tree is that they're underneath. So I'm stepped back, uh, ground range far enough back that we can see under it, uh, but not so far back that we start to get you know atmospheric degradation in the camera and that we lose fidelity on what's going on. As we set up on these, on this, uh, when these guys went static, we set up, and I immediately looked at it. And I'm kind of looking at our bearing. and I'm saying, like, all right, dude, I think we need to be southeast, probably looking from, you know, probably like a two eight zero bearing to a, you know, three four zero. What do you think? And he's looking at it. and He's like, yeah, that works. Uh, can we get a little closer? Can we get a little further? So we're we're talking constantly, uh, seeing how the positioning is. Other airspace considerations. So there, uh, obviously, uh, if you're familiar with Konar, uh, the border is not too far away. Uh, so we're not sucked right up against it. Uh, up then, uh, we had some approvals to operate pretty close. Our turn radius is small enough that it's, we can fly you know, parallel to a border and it's not a huge deal. It worked out that the direction of travel uh, was basically northeast. Uh, so we were able to offset and kind of parallel that. So I didn't have to point directly at the border. I'm going, uh, I've got essentially the, uh, the enemy uh, off the left wing and uh, Pakistan off the right wing uh, and the winds uh, conveniently coming out of the West. So I'm turning into the wind. Uh, so the wind is helping the station keep and kind of be, keep us clear of the border and maintain our offset uh, from what the target that we're trying to look at. So this process is going on for how long? So the whole mission, uh, like I said, we were in the seat, I think it was eight hours that day. Um, we went from from the time that we saw the weapons to when we got on the, with the JTAC was probably about 35 minutes. It seemed uh, seemed a lot faster, uh, just because you know immediately uh, you know you start to you know your brain starts to race and you think about all the stuff you got to do. That process was about half an hour, probably to get the strike uh, briefed up on the uh, supported unit side to the point that they came to us. And then uh, I think they asked us for a basic weapon recommendation. So we've got different variants of the Hellfire under the wings, uh, picking the one that would work the best. And then uh, internally to us, we're looking at, all right, if we have to shoot in here, we've got these shadows that we're trying to deal with. We've got... Uh, concern with train masking and then we've got a tree the way the way the target array was kind of laid out we had a tree we had the pickup truck itself and then a group of guys uh sitting down uh, with the weapons around them Uh, so we had about a 30 degree cone that we could see into and then if we were got too close uh we'd get masked by the tree because we couldn't look straight down because obviously the way it bushes out. Then if we got too far uh, south or north, uh, we weren't going to be able to see our target. So we're talking about, all right, if we're going to take this shot, we need to be uh, between here and here and we need to shoot at this range so that we'll be at this distance when the weapon impacts it will still have a good uh, laser to target line. So we're kind of doing the you know kind of bar napkin geometry. Uh, the way we actually do it is generally just writing on the screens with whiteboard pens, kind of talking amongst ourselves, like, all right, here, here, here are my cues. Uh, so the JTAC uh, calls us up. I told you, you pass the intent. Uh, we confirm like, hey, we think we want to use this particular variant of the Hellfire. This is going to be our best, this is going to be the best way to get this done. And Uh, The caveat they said was, hey, the GFC is going to pull in another asset uh, just to have an additional sensor because we did have that civilian pattern of life uh, down the ridgeline. And again, with the MQ-9, everything within 100 meters, we're pretty confident we're going to be able to see, you know, one field of view, Uh, but especially when we're terminally guiding a weapon, we obviously can't move the sensor around. So there's some risk there that it's a single sensor shot and they weren't willing to take a single sensor shot. Uh, So they had to uh, dynamically pull in uh, another uh, Reaper that had been uh, doing another mission that was probably 20 minutes transit away uh, up in the Northeast to get them to come onto the target, uh, get capture of what we were looking at and be our our extra eye in the sky uh, just to see what was going on and make sure that there was no collateral factor or anything like that. So that took added, you know, like I said, about 20 minutes or so. So it's probably about an hour from time of recognition and the PID call on the weapon system to we've got everybody. In place, and uh, we're thinking about taking a shot. And what's going through your head? At the time uh, I'm really focused on just like I'm thinking about contingencies. So I think I've got a good plan in the sense, in the sense that uh, I know I feel good about the weapon system that uh, the weapon that I'm going to use. I feel good about the shot as it is right there. But I'm thinking, all right, what if these guys go dynamic again? What are we going to do? Uh, the big risk, um, the most that you take, is with a laser-guided weapon. You know, right when you pull the trigger. What if, uh, you know, these guys all jump in a truck and start driving? Because then, you know, the target's changing and we're set up for a static shot and now it's going to be a a moving target and we've got a limited time of flight in order to get a good aim point. Talk about that. What if, you know, the guy with the PKM walks away um, and his bros with the AKs stay static? Do we take the guy with the big gun or do we take the largest group? So we're kind of talking about those, thinking about all those contingencies so that we can be concise uh, when we're talking to the JTAC and say like, hey, if X happens, uh, what do you want us to do? Or even based on the environment, like, hey, if these guys go uh, start to go dynamic, uh, we're going to do this because that's our best option. So we're thinking about all the contingencies. And then we're also thinking about like, all right, so we shoot these guys. Then what? Like, what are the considerations? What if we, you know, kill four out of the five or five out of the six, and we've got one guy who runs? What are we going to do? What's our best position to? How are we going to maneuver for a reattack? What's our best weapon for a reattack? What are our concerns uh, if we're going to reattack? Or we say we get one shot at this, not going to reattack. Uh, so we're thinking about all that stuff as well. And then again, we're still, uh, as time goes on, we're just, and as we orbit this, uh, we're just talking about our plan uh, as a crew, like, all right, these headings uh these are the things we got to do do we see did we think about anything are there any considerations Uh, is anything we missed kind of and we're briefing up uh internally our strike checklist uh we've got a kind of a two-part strike checklist that we'll run as a crew before every strike uh so we got in the nine line uh done our readbacks uh and we're set and we're just you know verifying that everything is good with the system just being ready for contingencies
0: you've got all of that do you get the authority to fire
1: we do uh so uh Kind of the way that CalmFlow worked is we're in our, uh, kind of a, uh, bow tie shaped orbit, uh, flying around, or not flying around, but in a bow tie orbit, station keeping at a specific azimuth, uh, where we thought we could take this shot. Uh, we turn in, uh, JTAC, uh, directs us to execute. Uh, so we turn in, we're about, uh, three quarters of the way through the turn, about to roll out, uh, you know, doing our final checks, getting ready to ask for our authorization. And, uh, right there, uh, JTAC gives us an abort call. says abort 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 Uh, they'd seen in the other mq9 they brought over they'd seen uh, somebody uh, walk out of the building and they were concerned it was collateral factor so it kind of puts us i talked about we're kind of slow and our turn radius is fairly tight Uh, it puts us kind of in the worst position uh, because we're basically directly over the target so we've got to turn around and drive back out to our hold so we can't see as well as we would like while the other sensor is monitoring what's going on with the pattern of life on the ground. So they watched that uh, assessed, you know, kind of civilian individual the guy that was just up there in his farm that had the Taliban show up uh, on, the, on the road above him. Uh, he walked back inside. All right so we're getting right back into position and the jtech uh, directs us to execute again so i remember very clearly like the aspect was not what we planned we we're a little further south and i remember i i look at dylan real quick I'm like hey dude you still good from here and he gives me the thumbs up like good to go so we crack the wings in uh turn in uh get the authorization uh make the in call get the authorization to shoot uh release the missile uh, guide that in get a uh, real good hit uh, exactly where we want it Basically neutralizes the uh, five guys that we had uh, out in the open, so they're they're done. The uh, truck uh, that had been sitting there is still there. So the uh, JTAC decides, like, all right, uh, now what we want to do is immediately reset uh, back into a ISR posture and see if we can get any immediate post-strike reflections because you set off a weapon. Uh, you know, it was right next to our house. So we expect like that people are going to notice and there's going to be a response to that. So they are immediately looking to see if we can capitalize on any indications about what just happened. Uh, so we kind of step out, uh, fly a larger orbit uh, in order to do that while they actually uh, bring in another asset uh, just to uh, finish off the truck as well. Uh, Cause they wanted to destroy any weapons or ammo that were in that. And they didn't want to uh, use another hellfire just because they're kind of limited. So we do that uh, kind of all high five, like good strike uh, bad guys. Are dead, weapon systems are destroyed, done what we want to do. And it was about at that point, I think we had like an hour left on shift. Uh so at that point we we're just sitting there like good job, uh kind of debriefing it to ourselves, debriefing with the jtech Kind of the funny thing is I talked about it was a little bit tense uh between us and the S2 shop is you know, we keep kind of, I don't want to say doing our own thing, but through that whole process, it's like, hey, we really need to develop this, we need to look over here, and then you know, after we've Done the done the strike and taken these dudes off the battlefield. All that's forgotten, all's forgiven. It's all you know, high fives and good jobs, uh, which you know is is good. But then it's important, I think, you know, to kind of capture like, all right, why did how did this work? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? How do we do this better next time? And incidentally, uh, we found out days later through the reporting cycle, that one of the individuals that was killed in that strike was actually the guy we were going after uh, that we'd stepped out the door uh, to go after. And we were just looking to locate him. And we happened to get lucky and actually kill him, which was, you know, had been foreseen. That was the eventual goal uh, was to, you know, pursue a finish option on that uh, Taliban guy. But we didn't think we were going to get that lucky that we were just going to happen to, you know, catch him and his bros walking around with a PKM. And we did. So to me, it just kind of speaks to how it's important to be, you know, not get pigeonholed into, you know, what you think you're going to do, because just because we think we go out there to do ISR and we think that there's a a technical solution, we can go get some intel to do this, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, another opportunity isn't going to present itself.
0: Looking for the intent as much as you are looking for the actual
1: taskings. Absolutely. I mean, I think... uh, I think we all talk about mission type orders and commander's intent is, you know, key to any military operation, Uh, but the processes that we have to do, especially when we've got multiple agencies, sometimes take away from that because we can be, you know, kind of a slave to our process. Like I, I'll make the joke, like, you know, fires guys want to shoot everything, Intel guys want to collect everything, EW guys want to jam everything. And we all think, well, our particular specialty is the path to victory. You know, and academically, we all realize we need Intel, Fires, and EW to do everything we're going to do. And it's just recognizing which solution is the right one at the time. And that one, it was a collaborative It wasn't always, you know, the smoothest collaboration, but it was very much a collaborative effort to realize, like, all right, we're going to go from something that's technically driven, kind of conventional reconnaissance. We're going to go collect, uh, bring some data back. Analysts are going to turn it into something meaningful to like real time, full motion video, like, I see this. Now I see this guy with a gun. Now there's four other guys with heavy weapons. This correlates with historical intel. We can make a real-time PID call and we can go directly from a, you know, ISR into a uh, a targeting cycle. So it was it collaborative and we executed it that way. But I think because we were able to kind of drive the fight, partly because on the aircrew side, we weren't really, we didn't have a uh, any skin in the game. We hadn't spent weeks building up a collection plan and briefing something up uh, and trying to go through the staffing process. And I've, having been a deployed staff officer, I, I'm sympathetic to what that's like trying to get you know a division headquarters to sign off on something. So I have a lot of sympathy to the guys in the S2 shop that had done all that work. And then we show up like, ah, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think we need to, I think we should follow this truck and see what happens. And now I'm also, there's a fair amount of dumb luck to it too. Uh, but I tend to think, you know, if, if you get lucky, like, you know, you got to roll with it. Like sometimes, sometimes if you, if an opportunity for a kind of a high payoff mission presents itself, you've got to flesh that out and see where it leads you.
0: Well, Joe, thanks for the story. And thanks for presenting again for the listeners on the spear. What, combat is like for a UAS pilot. We're going to see more and more folks like you and combat experiences are going to change a little bit. So before I let you go, anything else you'd like to add? Like you
1: say, I think uh, just the collaboration uh, is is important. Like that was the lesson uh, that I I took away from that. Um, Just understanding all the different ways, uh, the ways you can get after it, get effects on the battlefield. uh, And I appreciate you letting me uh, sit here and talk with you.